Hi everybody, I'm George and this is the best little horror house in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest at least, and today's guest is one of my good friends who's a, a big horror guy and is in fact part of the concerted effort to get our friend Dan into horror movies. Uh, welcome to the show, Pete Hayashi, welcome. Hey George, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So you may remember Dan from our Hereditary episode early in this show's run, and like I said, Pete is part of the concerted effort to get Dan more experience with horror movies. Pete is Dan's roommate, and so he has a lot a lot more control over what Dan <laughs> watches, and so we feed each other recommendations and stuff, but um, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got into horror? I don't know. I think it was kind of just uh, looking for new movies to watch. Is it So uh, it's more recent for you that you're getting into horror? Yeah, definitely. Was it was there something like growing up that like scared you away from it, or it just was something you weren't interested in? <laughs> um, probably a little bit of both. Like ET as a kid freaked me out. Sure, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, new stuff to watch. Always new stuff. Do you have a favorite subgenre within horror that you just like tend to gravitate towards? Probably more towards like the thrillers. Definitely a big Stanley Kubrick fan. As sure, you're about to find out. <laughs> The Shining is definitely one of the first horror movies I got into, and it's definitely one of my favorite movies. Yeah, um, it's a really great one. So you made an interesting choice for today's episode. And <laughs> well, I, I did want to do The Shining. Yeah, but, that's right. The yeah. Shining already picked, yeah. so that was off the table. And yeah. so we, we came to this. Uh, we're talking about the 1964 horror comedy Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Now, this is appropriately coming out the day before the election, so this is our election day special. Nothing like worrying about nukes dropping on the day before the election. Now, this is not something that might necessarily be considered a horror movie at first glance by a lot of people. And I know why I think it's a horror movie, but why don't you tell the folks at home what made it even come up as a consideration for you? For me, it's kind of the most horrifying thing you can think of, you know, the extinction of all human and animal life on the planet and, uh, you know, being forced to drink fluorinated water. <laughs> yeah, that's the real, that's the real fear there. <laughs> so first of all, I don't think that a horror movie has to be actively scary to be a horror movie. I think you can okay. look at just like classic gothic horror and stuff yeah. and, and see that easily. But you combine that with the looming fear of nuclear holocaust and government incompetence. That is indeed horrific enough for me to count it. So I don't even want to hear anyone complain about it out there. And Kubrick himself calls it a nightmare comedy, which to me, that's the same thing as a horror comedy. That's a pretty perfect way of describing right. it, I think. This is a nightmare, yeah. yeah. This is going to be a context-heavy episode, so we're going to do a little history lesson first. Uh, I will try and keep this as brief as I can as I bring us up to where the culture was at in 1964 when this movie came out. Okay. 1945. <laughs> the Second World War comes to a close, or it's coming to a close. The U.S., England, and Russia hold the Yalta Conference, where they discuss how the European nations would be reestablished after the war and control of Eastern Europe was ceded to Russia. Six months later, the U.S. drops the little boy on Hiroshima, killing 80,000 Japanese people, and the fat man on Nagasaki, killing another 70,000. Uh, and a week later, the emperor of Japan surrenders, officially ending the war. Six months again, Stalin gives a speech about the incompatibility of communism and capitalism. And this prompts Churchill to give his famous speech in which he claims... From Stettin in the Baltic to Triest in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Um, and, pretty good, uh, Churchill. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he drew parallels to appeasement of Hitler by advising that with Soviets, there is, quote, nothing which they admire so much as strength, and there is nothing for which they have less respect than military weakness. Now, the purpose of his talk was to argue for a, quote, special relationship between the United States and Great Britain, what he called the great powers of the English-speaking world, in organizing and policing the post-war world. Meanwhile, Stalin denounced this speech as warmongering and uh, Churchill's comments about the English-speaking world as uh, imperialist racism, which Churchill famously <laughs> fond of being uh, imperialist racist. Yeah. <laughs> this speech is widely considered to be the start of the Cold War. 
Um, and five days later, Truman had fully swallowed the pill. He's demanding that Russia leave Iran, and shortly thereafter, commencing Operation Crossroads, public displays of America's atomic arsenal. So this is when they start being like, we're putting the tests out there, and you can see our strength. Yeah. Late 1949, <laughs> the Russians test their first atomic bomb, and Mao Zedong establishes the People's Republic of China. This leads to Truman approving escalation of H-bomb development and McCarthy's witch hunts in early 1950. Both take sides in the Korean War, which broke out in 1950 as well. Then we jump to 1953. Dwight D. Eisenhower gives the Adams for Peace speech, then proceeds to approve the NSC document that claims a massive atomic weapons base is the only way to deter Soviet violence. And the U.S. needs to be ready to strike at any time. And during Eisenhower's time in office, the nuclear holdings of the U.S. rose from 1,005 to 20,000 nuclear weapons. And I think that this is really where the fear starts to come in. This, yeah. this, you have the two side, like the, the two faced government being like, oh, think of how great nukes will be for like power and energy and, and all the great clean energy that we'll get from it. Meanwhile, as they're building an arsenal, exactly, that wipe out the world. Yeah, exactly. And, the U.S. continues to help overthrow hostile regimes, and they bring West Germany into NATO, but the Eastern Bloc forms the Warsaw Pact in response to this. And mm-hmm. tensions only further escalate as the sides support conflicts across the globe, and the space race heats up as well in 1957 when Sputnik is launched. So now you have military race, this booming arsenal race, and space race, and they're both dumping money into both. You know, the defense budget is ballooning out of control. I mean, you can even see it today. Yeah. This is all really sort of where it all started from, the post-World War II mm-hmm. expansion of military power. And kind of in the background is like Werner von Braun working on his, his rockets and his... Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Will, I get probably come up again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 1959, Castro takes Cuba. 1960, the Soviet Union shoots down a spy plane from the U.S. as Jack Kennedy is elected president. 1961, the Bay of Pigs invasion is funded by the U.S. in response to the nationalization of American businesses in Cuba and fails, further solidifying Castro's power and straining relationships even further. The Berlin Wall construction also begins in 1961, closing the border between capitalist uh, West Germany and communist East Germany. In 1962, Cuba asks Russia for nuclear weapons to deter another invasion like the Bay of Pigs. Russia agrees, which leads to the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is considered the closest the Cold War came to heating up, and also results in the creation of the nuclear hotline between the United States and the Soviet Union. This is a, a so how how closely after the Cuban Missile Crisis did this movie come out? So. This movie was filming in 1963. Okay. <laughs> so literally the next yeah. year. It's it's remarkable. And that hotline between the U.S. and, and Russia is such a famous trope. Yeah. That, like, it just feels like... So this is, like, one of the first movies to do it. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. That's cool. In 1963, Kennedy is assassinated, and this leads us to 1964, the year when the Gulf of Tonkin incident is fabricated by the U.S., as confirmed in the Pentagon Papers, the memoirs of Robert McNamara, and NSA publications from 2005, which allows the U.S. government to lie to the public and justify a war against the spread of communism in Vietnam. So we're finally here. (laughs) We made it. 1964. The movie is coming out. We're on our way to Vietnam. We have this fear of nukes, and and everyone is on constant vigilance against the spread of communism. And this containment policy of... Like the the domino theory. Right, exactly. If if one country falls, all the other ones will. Right. And so the United States and Russia are at each other's throats. The threat of nukes lingers over everyone's head, like the sword of Damocles... Anti-communist propaganda flies fast and furious in the West. And meanwhile, living in jolly old England, since he filmed Lolita there, uh, Stanley Kubrick releases Dr. Strangelove, his second anti-war film after Paths of Glory. As the Cold War was unfolding, Kubrick was, like many, terrified of nuclear annihilation. Mm -hmm. And part of why he moved in the first place was that he was worried that New York City, where he lived and had been born, uh, would be a big target for Russia, I think, pretty reasonably. Mm -hmm. Um, And he even considered Australia to be as as far out of the way as possible. Australia seems pretty safe. Yeah. So was he also fearful of being targeted as a potential communist? Because he worked with 
Dalton Trumbo on Spartacus. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that he um, he he had some people knocking on his doors, and while he was making this movie, you know, he yeah. just didn't even bother reaching out to the Air Force because they took like one look at it and were like, "There's no fucking way we're helping with this." <laughs> but he really dove into the subject to try and like control that fear, and yeah. he he studied over forty military and political research books before reaching the conclusion that quote. Nobody really knew anything, and the whole situation was absurd. <laughs> One of these books was Red Alert, recommended to him by the head of the British Research Institute in the area of international affairs, Alistair Buchan, uh, which he was impressed by, this book. He liked it a lot. And so he immediately went and got the rights to Red Alert, the novel on which this movie is based, yep. and he planned to adapt it with the help uh, of the author as like a political thriller. He intended okay. this to be a much more straightforward, Heavy. tense, yeah. like threat of nukes is yeah. happening sort of thing. Fun fact, the author of the book is named Peter George. Yeah. That's us. <laughs> <laughs> it's also an incredibly British name. Yeah, for sure. So... While they were, like, getting these drafts together of this serious script, yeah. um, he started to become worried that it wouldn't be believable. Uh -huh. And so he decided to shape it into a satire, but not even the one that we know today. It was originally going to be called The Delicate Balance of Terror, and the plot of Red Alert uh, was going to be situated in the movie as a film within a film being made by aliens. Hmm. Was it him or Orson Welles who mm. wanted to do, like, a movie inside of... A movie? Uh -huh. Sounds yeah. like him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kubrick said that, uh, quote, my idea of doing it as a nightmare comedy came in the early weeks of working on the screenplay. I found that in trying to put meat on the bones and imagine the scenes fully, one had to keep leaving out of it things which were either absurd or paradoxical in order to keep it from being funny. And these <laughs> things seemed to be too close to the heart of the scenes in question. So... Filming was looming, and he abandoned this idea and yeah. hired uh, journalist and satirical author Terry Southern, uh, whose work he had actually been introduced to by Peter Sellers. Okay. And Terry helped turn that script into the base of what we actually got on the screen, uh, fully absurdist and loaded with like sexual innuendos and yeah. stuff. Yeah. And uh, Kubrick polished the screenplay himself, and this actually led to some tense relations with Peter George because... Southern and Kubrick both got substantially more credit mm -hmm. uh, than Peter George did, yeah. despite his work on the source material and the original draft. So he was pretty uh, pissed about that. Additional names considered were Dr. Doomsday, or How to Start World War III Without Even Trying, Dr. Strangelove's Secret Uses of Uranus, and, <laughs> and Wonderful Bomb. So okay. there you go. I think... Um, so we were talking about that during the movie, why it's called... Dr. Strangelove, because he, he only has, like, four scenes in the entire movie. Yeah, he's, he's in it for a handful of minutes, yeah. but basically what we landed on was that if you track back the decision, yeah. it all, like, the little tiny domino uh -huh. is Dr. Strangelove himself reaching out to the uh, Bland Corporation instead of the <laughs> Rand Corporation to fund a, hy a hypothetical study on uh, on what might start uh, what the doomsday device might be necessary for and everything and yeah. uh, what would happen and this goes to the New York Times and the Russians see it and then they start <laughs> developing their doomsday device and all it takes is one person going off the handle to yeah. uh, set this in motion which I think is really a big part of the fear of this movie is that it, General Ripper is the only one who needed to deviate from the norm yeah. and it sets off this unstoppable chain of events it's it's a uh... You know, civility and tradition is supposed yeah. to keep us alive. Yeah. <laughs> and also his, his monologue at the end, Dr. Strangelove's, I guess kind of ties everything sure. back together. Yeah. yeah. Columbia Pictures agreed to finance the film if Peter Sellers played at least four major roles because of their decision that Lolita had only been a success because Peter Sellers' uh, character assumed several identities Especially after Sellers had also played three roles in The Mouse That Roared in 1959. Kubrick accepted the demand, saying, quote, Such crass and grotesque stipulations are the sine qua non of the motion picture business, which translates to, without this, there is nothing. Hmm. So basically he's saying that these bullshit requests are part <laughs> and parcel of working within Hollywood. Huh. I, I didn't know Peter Sellers had so many movies where he played multiple characters yeah. we were talking about this beforehand uh growing up as a kid i watched like a lot of those like original pink panther movies they're great and yeah they, 
they got some not so great things about them. Sure. Hey, look, not back. everything can age perfectly. Yeah. yeah. But um, but they are a lot of fun, especially that first one. I think yeah. is really uh, a good time still. Yeah. Um, Peter Sellers is great in all yes. of this. Yeah. Certainly, the the performance is very good. Yeah. So he only wound up, however, playing three of the four performances uh, after much reluctance to take on the role of Major Kong in the first place due to his accent. Huh. And then injuring himself in a way that wouldn't let him film in the cockpit. He, like, twisted his ankle. Yeah. And so, just not meant to be. That, that would have been weird. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that uh, Slim Pickens is, is certainly much more suited to the role. Yeah. But Sellers' first role was a group Captain Mandrake, which he said was a relatively easy performance for him, since he's basically just imitating his superiors from his time <laughs> in the Royal Air Force during World War II. So, that was nice and easy. Yeah. Um, the second role for him is U.S. President Merkin Muffley, uh, <laughs> based heavily on Adlai Stevenson, former Illinois governor and Democratic candidate for the 1952 and 1956 presidential elections, plus, crucially, the U.N. ambassador during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Hmm. Finally, he plays the titular Dr. Strangelove, implied to be a German import from Operation Paperclip, the utilitarian but perhaps less than ethical <laughs> efforts to convince Nazi scientists that rather than stand trial for crimes against humanity, they should come be American Nazi scientists. <laughs> this, of course, hastened the arms race and development of intercon intercontinental ballistic weapons, and of course the Russians had their own Nazis as well, thanks to Operation Oza Aviakim. Uh, interestingly, Strangelove is one of the aspects of the movie not found in the source material, mm -hmm. but is amalgamated from several real figures, uh, including military-affiliated think tank Rand Corporation strategist Herman Kahn, uh, mathematician, Manhattan, uh, Manhattan Project principal and postulator of the idea of mutually assured destruction, John von Neumann, and Operation Paperclip rocket scientist uh, Werner von Braun. And, of course, Edward Teller, the father of the hydrogen bomb as well. So they really... Are all these guys, except for Teller, like Germans from Nazi uh, Germany? It certainly looks that way. <laughs> I didn't Jesus. do too much research into Khan's background. <laughs> okay. Um, but there's a lot of paperclip going on in there, for sure. He's also got the mad scientist vibe that Rot Wang has in Fritz Lang's Metropolis due to the single gloved hand. Mm. I also thought it was really funny that... Rotwang is another like kind of like sexual innuendo that fits in perfectly <laughs> with. Did not even think about movie. that. The, the names in this movie are great. Yeah, they're really funny. To replace Sellers as Major Kong, they originally reached out to John Wayne, who immediately <laughs> turned it down. I wonder why. Yeah. Um, that would have been really funny. That would have been really funny. And then they, they reached out to Bonanza star Dan Blocker, whose agent turned it down for being, quote, too pinko. <laughs> And finally, they got Slim Pickens, who, quote, was Major Kong on and off the set. He didn't change a thing. His temperament, his language, his behavior. Pickens was not told that this movie was supposed to be funny. And he was only given the script for the scenes he was in. And this got him uh, to play it straight. Those are some pretty, like, intense scenes. Yeah. Other than, like, you know, him opening the safe and getting the cowboy hat. <laughs> Those scenes are pretty intense. Yeah, it's it's that's like the serious that the the jokes are like counterbalanced against yeah. is this ticking clock of the plane getting closer and closer and closer. Yeah, this is also the screen debut of James Earl Jones, who is a member of Kong's crew, mm -hmm. the DK crew. <laughs> <laughs> but he he's also the one who basically talked about Slim Pickens and being yeah. like just totally the same. That is him. It's crazy how much. Like, his voice has not changed at all. Yeah. So. The film's set design was done by Ken Adams, who's famous for several Bond movies, including the already released Dr. No, which is the first Bond movie. Okay. The War Room in particular is famous for its design, again drawing parallels to German Expressionism and Metropolis in particular. It's built uh, to suggest a giant concrete bomb shelter. Yeah. And uh, in the middle is a large circular table lit from above to bring the feeling of a poker table. It's very James Bond-esque. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, yeah. that guy's got a style, for yeah. sure. Yeah, now that you said that. Uh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Huh. Um, Kubrick even leaned into this, like, poker table feeling, um, yeah. and even though it didn't show up in the black and white photography, uh -huh. the table was covered with the same green woolen material that poker tables are covered in yeah. to let the actors feel like they're playing poker for the fate of the world, which is... <laughs> kind of what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, the movie was shot in 15 weeks, ending in April of 1963. Okay. Um, and it was scheduled to release just weeks after the Kennedy assassination. But it got pushed back because the studio was like, people aren't going to want to see a movie this dark. Yeah. And uh, it's very political as well. And so... I wonder how people thought of the movie when it first came out. Cause I'll tell you, bro. Okay. <laughs> But basically, Kubrick got to spend eight months editing it with Anthony Harvey instead and released it on January 29th, 1964. It was a financial success, making $9.4 million on a $1.8 million budget, but it did have mixed opinions. Uh, The New York Times critic Bosley Crowther called it, quote, the most shattering sick joke I've ever come across. But... It was nominated for Best Actor, Director, and Adapted Screenplay and Picture at the Academy Awards, losing in all categories to My Fair Lady, except (laughs) for the screenplay where it lost to Beckett. So, have you seen My Fair Lady? No. It's pretty good. I don't know know if it's as good as Dr. Strangelove. It's a pretty good movie, though. I mean, it's like how Rocky beat Newsroom. Right. It's just like, that's a better movie for the time. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. The movie's renowned has continued to grow, however, since this sort of rocky start. I mean, rocky in terms of, like, critic reception. Obviously, yeah. it's a, it was a success. But the renown did continue to grow, being included in the National Film Registry. It's included in Ebert's list of the great movies beginning in 1999. Hmm. Uh, it's number 26 greatest movie of all time, according to Empire Magazine. 12th best screenplay of all time, according to the Writers Guild of America in 2016. So you think they know what they're talking about. Yeah. And deemed by the American Film Institute to be the 39th greatest American film and third greatest American comedy in 2000. That's funny, because it was produced pretty much exclusively in the UK, right? Well, it was produced by Columbia Pictures in the US, so it is technically a US production, but it was just filmed in the the UK. So so that's the context of the movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everyone was scared of having nukes dropped on them. Bingo, bango, bongo, here it comes. So to get into the actual movie, first thing we see is a note claiming uh, the military... It's the military claiming (laughs) that their safeguards would stop this scenario... Uh, The Air Force even produced a documentary, SAC Command Post, to demonstrate responsiveness to presidential command and its tight control on our nukes. But later research into declassified documents showed that the U.S. military commanders had been given presidentially authorized pre-delegation for the use of nuclear weapons during the early Cold War, showing that that aspect of the film's plot was, in fact, plausible. (laughs) The reality of this movie is what makes it so scary. Yeah, because it's just one insane guy deciding he's had enough of politicians and he he wants to start World War III. Yeah. The movie proper opens up with a voice narrating over the clouds, and uh, there's a few mountain peaks poking through. And it states basically that uh, intelligence shows that Russians have been working on this doomsday device. Yeah. I love the opening credits. It's this like dreamy love song playing over shots of military planes <laughs> uh, tied together to refuel in midair. Um, it's, it's very uh, uh, suggestive. Those planes are fucking. Yeah, they're fucking. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's it's obviously uh, intended to be very sexual, as is a lot of this movie. There's a there's a lot of sexual undertones to yeah. it. And come to think about it, that that's kind of like a good le- like lead into the the conspiracy yeah. that you know the commies and the women are coming to take your that's right bodily fluids. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also really like the great handwritten font. Uh, it looks a lot like Stop Making Sense. Like, it literally looks like this tattoo I have. Yeah, it's really nice. We have General Ripper. He's played by Sterling Hayden in this great, great performance. Yeah. And he calls Captain Mandrake to tell him to put everyone on red alert. Mandrake assumes this is a drill, but Ripper grimly informs him that there's no such luck. Transmit Plan R to the pilots and impound all privately owned radios. It's then revealed that the U.S. has a force of B-52 bombers armed with hydrogen bombs 24 hours a day flying around in case of nuclear attack. Each one capable of dropping 50 megatons of nukes with a force 16 times greater than all the bombs and shells used by all armies in World War II. You think this is still happening? Like, there's just planes up there, like, with hydrogen See, this bombs? This is... Th- I don't know. Yeah. I genuinely don't know. Yeah. I bet, probably... It, it, it seems like missiles probably replaced most of the planes, but 
It wouldn't surprise me. Or drones, like yeah. just friggin' drones circling around up there. Yeah. That we're, I feel like we're going to sound like friggin' crackpots <laughs> today. Like, we're just going to get our tinfoil hats they're on. coming for us. <laughs> yeah. And we can talk about this later, but General Ripper is very much in that, like, people would believe it now that, oh, like, yeah. oh, fluorinated water. We'll get to it. <laughs> <laughs> And each one of these planes, basically, yeah. is uh, two hours from their target inside Russia. Yeah. They're already at the fail-safe point. And so, after confirming Plan R, the aircraft, including one of these bombers, led by Major Kong, mm-hmm. press on as uh, when Johnny Comes Marching Home kicks in, and uh, he promises them all promotions and personal citations <laughs> after they nuke Russia. Um, General Buck Turgidson gets a call to follow up on this. And his secretary slash mistress, Miss Scott, a.k.a. Miss Foreign Affairs, hitherto this moment, lounging quite comfortably on a bed, answers the phone. I really like this introduction to General Turgidson a lot. Yeah. Uh, the information is getting shouted to him while he's on the pooper. And then he <laughs> and, just... And he has another sexual innuendo name. Right, sure. Turgid. Yeah. A, a very evocative <laughs> innuendo as well. And, um, and George C. Scott is... Excellent in this movie. Oh, he's so, so good. I, I like him a lot in this. Well, I like him in The Changeling, uh, The Exorcist 3, being a real-life grump. <laughs> I, I gotta see more of these movies, because the only two movies I've seen him in are this one and Patton. Yeah. And, like, he knocks it out of the park on both of them. He's great. Yeah. He's a really, really incredible actor. Yeah. And uh, he comes in. The information is, yeah, like I said, he's being shouted to him. And he comes yeah. in. He's got an unbuttoned shirt on. He's in his boxers. He slaps his belly. <laughs> and Turgidson is based on Strategic Air Command's General Curtis LeMay. And like we said, okay. is played by George C. Scott. Yeah. Who also makes an appearance in that god-awful uh, Pearl Harbor movie. Oh, we don't... <laughs> no. We're not talking about that one. Kubrick is known for utilizing whatever it takes to get the correct take. Yeah. And he tricked... George C. Scott into playing the role of General Turgidson much more over the top than Scott was comfortable doing uh-huh. uh, with, quote, practice takes that will never be used. <laughs> and obviously Kubrick used these takes in the final film. Yeah. Uh, this caused Scott to swear to never work with Kubrick again, although he said he would always respect Kubrick's skill at chess because uh, Scott is a big chess fan and yeah. Kubrick is like literally a, like a master chess player. He uh-huh. used to like hustle people <laughs> Uh, to make money, like, by playing chess. and That's cool. um, I, I'm trying to think of, like, other Kubrick movies Scott would have been good in. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say. Uh, maybe 2001 he could have been interesting in, but those yeah. are usually... I mean, those are younger astronauts. I don't know that... He, but he could have been... He could have been in there somewhere, probably. Yeah. Um, but he is... Like I said, he's great in The Exorcist 3. That's really one you should check out, for huh. sure. Yeah. Skip The Exorcist 2. Everyone out there, go right from <laughs> 1 to 3. Anyway, uh, the general tells them to go to Code Red just in case, and he'll go check on things. Mm-hmm. Cut to the 843rd Bomb Wing Strategic Air Command, so indicated by giant ironic sign that says, Peace is our profession. <laughs> which, I, did you know that's their real slogan? No, but that's really funny. Yeah. I, I like in that, that one scene later when it looks like they're exclusively shooting the sign. Yeah. <laughs> And Ripper, over the loudspeaker, tells them that the Kami has no regard for human life, even his own. And constant vigilance is the name of the game. Shoot anyone who approaches, and don't trust anyone you don't know personally. <laughs> the pilots also cut off communication, yeah. uh, borrowing that which comes through the CRM with the code prefix. Mm-hmm. The prefix they use is OPE, which we find out later what that means. <laughs> but Mandrake discovers civilian broadcasts happening yeah. on the radios that he was commanded to impound, uh-huh. um, which means that nothing has happened yeah. and no war order has been issued by the Pentagon. He tries to get Ripper to issue recall orders, mm-hmm. but Ripper locks them, in, <laughs> he locks them both in the office yeah. and he asks Mandrake to fetch him a drink of grain alcohol and rain water. <laughs> really, really funny. And it's rainwater specifically because, as he tells Mandrake, he believes the Soviets have been using fluoridation of the American water supplies to pollute the precious bodily fluids of Americans. Since 1946. You yeah. What else happened in 1946? The start of the Cold War. That's right. Mandrake realizes that obviously Ripper has gone insane. <laughs> and there's some really great physical uh, performances here by yeah. both of them. 
this is, I mean, like I said, this movie is not like actively scary in a like things jumping out at you way, but uh-huh. there's a shot here, one of the close-ups of General Ripper, where you see like the glint in his eye yeah. and the smoke puffs up and he has this like... And he's st- chewing on that like cigar. <laughs> steely determination. And yeah. like it genuinely is like, oh my God, like this, this guy this is nuts. Yeah, it's crazy. It's really great. It's a, it's a really awesome moment. And uh, interestingly, Hayden, who plays Ripper, was reportedly a member of the Communist Party himself. <laughs> so there you go. That's funny. This polluting of pure essence is a real conspiracy theory. Seriously? C- circulated by extreme right-wing John Birch Society in the 1950s and 1960s. I have heard of that. The organization, which was founded in 1958, was quite influential in conservative politics at the time, so some things never change. I've actually heard that they were so crazy, they thought Dwight D. Eisenhower was a secret communist. (laughs) (laughs) And I've also heard that uh, Alex Jones' parents were both members of the John Birch Society. Wow, that explains a lot. Yeah, because it's like a one-for-one, like... You could easily drop QAnon into this... (laughs) And it would be such an easy fit. Like, yeah. this movie, part of what scares me a lot is that nothing has changed. Yeah, I agree with you on that. They're like... But it, it's so funny that, like, this movie that came out in 1964, it's just like... Like, it's clearly played for a joke. People think that, like, fluorinated water is a communist, like, plot. But, like, now, people would actually believe that. Sure. Yeah. There's... Pedophiles at Comet Pizza, and they're fluoridating your water. And, I mean, it would be just another insane plot that QAnon hatched up. In in this insane year. Yeah. Yeah. He also mentions that Clemenceau once said that war was too important to be left to the generals. But today, war is too important to be left to the politicians. Now, the original is about maintaining a clarity of purpose and not just being aggressive for aggression's sake. But clearly... Ripper agrees with Stalin about the coexistence of communism and capitalism. And he doesn't want the politicians to think of lives, but rather of the ideology. And he Mm -hmm. talks about how they don't have the stomach or the inclination to think strategically and stuff. Yeah. And this, I think that this scene is really where you can crystallize why this movie is scary. Yeah. It's it's a great one, too. The performance is really just the two of them getting to really play off each other in a great way. In the war room at the Pentagon, they confirm that everyone is there except the vice president, the secretary of state, and the secretary of defense, uh, which really cracks me up. Uh And General Buck Turgidson briefs President Merkin Muffley (laughs) (laughs) and all the other officers about how Plan R enables a senior officer to launch a strike against the Soviets, if all superiors have been killed in a first strike on the United States. Yeah. He also says that his men are trying every possible three-letter CRM code to issue the sand-down order, but that that could take two and a half days, <laughs> and the planes are due to penetrate Russian radar coverage in 25 minutes, starting at the beginning of the meeting. They're interrupted by Turgidson taking a call from his secretary, uh, who he assures Bucky would much rather be with you, but the president <laughs> needs him, and that it's not just physical, he deeply respects her as a human being. And, and he's going to make her Mrs. Bucky Turgidson. That's so nice. Um, and uh, he also warns her to uh, make sure she, she says her prayers <laughs> that night. That, that's a funny yeah. line. Muffley orders the U.S. Army to storm the base and arrest General Ripper. But Turgidson tries to convince the president to let the attack continue. And basically, he wants him to fall in line with yeah. Ripper's plan. Yeah. And it, he, it'll only cost 10 to 20 million lives. Yeah. You see that the snake rots from the head down. And this military attitude yeah. is just is poisonous. It has poisoned them all. Yeah. That they're like, yes, let's just do it. Fuck and, and like a, a, a less ethical person would just be like, yeah. Right. He says that they'll, they should launch an all-out attack and this would destroy 90% of their nuclear capabilities. And this is, again, sort of a leaning on that like crystallized fear now that we've really seen what's happening here. Mm-hmm. The cavalier attitudes that both the police and military are trained to view human lives with. Yeah. That this is, as part of his plea to attack... Turgidson says, I'm not saying we wouldn't get our hair must, but no more than 10 to 20 million killed tops, depending on the breaks. 
these guys are so disgusted by another people's way of life yeah. and so paranoid that they are the ones bringing their self-fulfilling prophecy to a head and causing the deaths of millions of people. <laughs> so Muffley refuses to be involved in a first strike. Yeah. And he instead brings Soviet ambassador Alexei de Sadesky into the war room. <laughs> Or Dasadsky, excuse me, because it's the Marquis de Sade is yeah. the idea. Uh-huh. And he brings him into the war room where he'll see the big board and everything. <laughs> um, His love for the big board. It's is, so funny. Yeah. It is just hysterical. <laughs> to telephone Soviet premier Dmitry Kisov uh, on the hotline, that yeah. hotline that we were talking about. Uh-huh. Turgensen is extremely displeased by this. <laughs> so, so did they know about the hotline? Like, Yeah. Because right. I, I, I think that JFK was like, we're going to have this yeah. so that... So that uh, we could always get in touch with uh, the Russians. Started off good. <laughs> well, then it, then it, was it turned like, into Clone High at the end. Kennedy having a stroke at the end. <laughs> or, uh, <laughs> but yeah, he, he, him and the ambassador start to squabble. Yeah. Turgis in and the ambassador. And this leads to the wonderful line, Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. <laughs> Muffley warns the premier of the impending attack. And he offers to reveal the positions of the bombers and the targets. So that the Soviets can protect themselves. Yeah. The scene is great. It's extremely funny. And like trying to get in touch with the premier when he's, you know, off having his (laughs) affair is pretty funny too. Yeah. But I mean, just um, Peter Sellers just talking to himself, basically. Like, I'm sure there was no one on the opposite line or on the opposite end. And famously, he did ad lib a lot of his performances in this movie. And they sort of like retro scripted to make whatever the lines that he landed on be the script of the movie. That's interesting. Yeah. And um, you can can definitely see that with the the Dr. Strangelove character. Right. The most. Yeah. Yeah. And him being on the phone and just going off is so funny when he's like, I'm, you don't, you, I'm as sorry as you are, Dimitri. Like, it's really great. Someone made the joke while we were watching this. It's like talking to your grandmother. Yeah. <laughs> After a heated discussion in Russian with the premier, the ambassador informs President Muffley that the Soviet Union has created the doomsday device that we heard about at the very beginning. Yeah. Which consists of a hundred or so buried bombs jacketed with cobalt thorium G, uh, connected to a computer network set to detonate them automatically should any nuclear attack strike the country or any efforts to disarm it are made. Within two months after detonation, the cobalt thorium G would encircle the planet in a radioactive doomsday shroud, wiping out all human and animal life and rendering the surface of the Earth uninhabitable as dead as the moon, they say. Uh, the device cannot be deactivated, and the idea was one that they couldn't. The idea was that they couldn't afford to keep up yeah. with all the like the cost of the arms race and everything. Um, the people so, just wanted nylons, and so they cut to the chase. Yeah, uh, and uh, you know, on a certain level, you're like, I mean, it makes sense. <laughs> like, uh, if you can't keep up, yeah, that you're just gonna skip right to the end result, yeah. uh, especially because they say that it costs like a fraction of their typical yearly defense budget. Yeah. Turgidson wants one of his own. He's upset. <laughs> <laughs> when the president's scientific advisor and head of weapons research and development, the former Nazi scientist, German Dr. Strangelove, he points out that such a doomsday device would only be effective uh, as a deterrent if everybody knows about it. <laughs> Uh, and Dasadsky replies that the Soviet premier had planned to reveal the existence to the world the following week because you know how the premier loves surprises. <laughs> Meanwhile, Ripper is explaining his the commie plot of water fluoridation to Mandrake mm-hmm. while Mandrake nervously laughs and bullets like rip through the wall. <laughs> and then Ripper puts a damn belt-fed machine gun down on his desk to fight back. That he pulls out of his golf club yeah. bag. And he reveals that he became aware of this plot after he had sex and felt <laughs> fatigued and empty afterward. I, I laughed a lot at when he's like, thankfully, I was able to interpret this feeling correctly. Yeah. And like, That's a great line. This is so part and parcel of this movie of like... They have all this military knowledge, they, but like... Well, and, and they're overcompensating. Yeah. Because they have an inferiority complex. Yeah. And so everybody has to have the biggest gun and the biggest bomb yeah. and the biggest dick. And, I mean, it seems like maybe there's some um, repressed homosexuality on General Ripper's part. Well, there's definitely that, that one part where he's, like, very 
intimately like oh, touching <laughs> Mandrake. And he he has that like piece of gum that he just like turns into like, I don't know, like nothing. Nothing. He yeah. folds that thing up like a billion times. They yeah. say you can't fold a piece of paper more than seven times, but I would advise that they check out this movie because yeah. it certainly looks like he gets that in there. But yeah, he, he insists that he interprets this feeling of hollowness after having sex with a woman as uh, the fluoridation and pollution of his essence. And um, he says that he doesn't avoid women and they can feel his power, but he does deny them this essence. And so this is his explanation for why he doesn't. He's, he's the first no sort guy. Yeah, exactly. He's uh, not an incel, but he's voluntary, a volcel. <laughs> When this conversation is happening, the rest of the troops surrender, and Ripper is disappointed in them, but Mandrake assures him that they definitely all died thinking of him, <laughs> which I thought was really funny. And that, that one's very... It's funny that um, while he's being the British officer, yeah. you, he really gets a lot of the like very dry British humor lines he in does. there, um, yeah. and I think that that is a really great example of it. Uh-huh. General Ripper shoots and kills himself, yeah. because he, he doesn't think he can hold up under torture, he doesn't want them to get the code, mm-hmm. so he goes into the bathroom, he shoots himself, and Mandrake checks out the desk and finds his notebook with unhinged scribblings <laughs> indicating that the code which we know which we know to yeah. be OPE is a variation on both peace on earth and purity of essence. <laughs> it sounds like a, a soap tagline. Yeah. He unfortunately uh, is being he like uh, he gets the door gets shot open yeah. by one of the men who led the assault on the base, Colonel Bat Guano, <laughs> who is convinced that Mandrake is a prevert leading a prevert mutiny, but Mandrake is able to convince him to let him place a call to the president. This is another really great scene as he's scrambling to put together the change to get on there. He's like, can it be a collect call? Uh, You'll have to answer to the Coca-Cola Corporation. It's just really (laughs) great. That scene is like the the more subtle, like physical comedy. Yeah. Yeah. And you see, yeah, you just see him getting more and more frustrated in there. It's really great. He passes along the code after getting the money out of the Coke machine, <laughs> and uh, Sachs successfully recalls all the bombers except Major Kong's, which has been hit by a missile, mm-hmm. so they're leaking fuel, and more importantly, has a busted radio, so the message, even with the code, can't reach them. Yeah. You think you'd have, like, two radios on... <laughs> Maybe they did. Maybe they uh, both got destroyed. Yeah. But, I mean, it's probably also expensive. And you got limited space on... What are you talking about? You can afford it. <laughs> true, true. Richest country in the world. Take it out of a school. Yeah, right? They don't need Defund things. education so that we can get a second radio in each one of those planes. The world wouldn't end. <laughs> the Soviets attempt to find it, mm-hmm. but Major Kong, fuel leaking quickly from this missile attack, yeah. decides to quickly switch to the closest target of opportunity instead of the two targets that were in their mission. Yeah. So now the Soviets don't know where they are, and the Americans don't either. Mm-hmm. As the plane approaches the new target, the crew is unable to open the damaged bomb bay doors, and Kong heads down and repairs the broken wiring while sitting on the bomb. And while he does, the bomb drops with Kong, uh, whooping and hollering all the while, detonating at the Soviet missile site. And you get that great line from uh, James Earl. Oh, what about Major Kong? As he's just falling out of the bomb. He does not give a shit. (laughs) Back in the war room... Dr. Strangelove recommends that the president gather several hundred thousand people to live in deep underground mines for a hundred years uh, where the radiation won't reach them and that a 10 to 1 female to male ratio would be best for a breeding program to repopulate the earth once the radiation is gone. And, and as he's saying that, you can see uh, George C. Scott like licking his lips. Yeah. <laughs> president Merkin is concerned about deciding who lives and who dies. And Dr. Strangelove assures him that a computer could do the work. No way that anything could possibly go wrong with this plan that literally starts off with eugenics factors being considered and definitely not from his Nazi past. I wonder who's programming that computer. Yeah, exactly. Um, I... The first time I watched this movie, it did not click to me yeah. that the reason that his arm starts acting up so much it is because he's being so Nazi-esque. <laughs> he's leaning on this eugenics like, yeah. of it, and so the arm he's is like, like, the time is now! Yeah. For, for the viewers at home, if you haven't seen it, he has like an alien arm syndrome or something where his he gloved has, he hand... Has actual Nazi arm syndrome. Yeah, and uh, his arm uh, acts on its own, of its own accord, uh, even tries to <laughs> strangle him at one point. But yeah, that was just something that I, I hadn't... It didn't click. I think that it uh, it's really great. It's like yeah. a nice little touch. And Turgidson 
is worried that the Soviets will do the same. Yeah. And he warns about a mineshaft gap. Mr. President, we cannot have a mineshaft gap. <laughs> and Alexei secretly photographs the war room. Yeah. And, and the big see- board. <laughs> and the big board. Yeah. And we see that it's already begun again. Nothing yeah. in the in the course they, of this they movie can't even like happen. come together like that that's the most like unbelievable part of like Watchmen and like other stuff like that is just like we wouldn't like come together we'd just be like oh now we have an opportunity to right. like yeah. It's a uh, it's fun Or at up. least our leaders. <laughs> yeah. would. Well, right, that's the thing yeah. is like the problem is not only do these people not know, like the average person, not know that this is happening, they yeah. have no say in any of it. Like, well, and and he he even says, like, oh, of course, like the president and the government and the military, yeah, they'd be included, right? Yeah, and uh, it's not nice. It's not nice. And uh, Doctor Strangelove declares that he has a plan to prevent the mine shaft gap. <laughs> when miraculously he rises from his wheelchair and declares, "Mein Führer, I can walk." Uh, and it, just as the doomsday device activates and, um, you know, one miracle, That's... on the other hand, the absolute <laughs> annihilation of uh, the Earth. Do, do you think he could walk because he, like, healed himself with this, like, <laughs> actualization of his, like, plan? I, I don't know. Or, I, or he was just like... I think it's just a miracle. I yeah. think they're just like, who, who knows how this is happening? God yeah. is here. God isn't here. Like... <laughs> How if God is here to give him this miracle of walk of watching or like of being able to walk again? Why yeah. is he letting these nukes go off? It's a very complicated it's, ending in in terms of uh, it's emotional like repercussions. And yeah, like, yeah, very hard to like understand. Right. So the film ends with a montage of many many nuclear explosions, accompanied by Vera Lynn's version of the World War II song "We'll Meet Again." It was originally planned for the film to end with a scene that depicted everyone in the war room involved in a pie fight. Um, But this was cut for a litany of reasons, including Kubrick decided that it was farcical and not satire, that it changed the tone too much into pure comedy. Mm -hmm. That would have been a strange ending. He called it a uh, a disaster of Homeric proportions. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, you also lost definition of who was who with the pie all over them, so you you couldn't tell who was what. And also the actors just couldn't play the scene straight. They were just laughing too hard at throwing (laughs) the... pie around and so there was no fear it was just a bunch of guys having a good old time yeah you can even see you pointed it out when peter sellers is doing the the dr strangelove monologue slash like fighting his hand uh the the russian ambassador is like he's cackling like, he's trying yeah. so hard not to laugh and failing i yeah. might add <laughs> there was also a, a line about like the president got hit by a pie and uh, someone shouts uh, our gallant young president has been struck down in his prime. Oh, boy. <laughs> and so, considering the time that this was released at, Columbia Pictures was concerned about offending JFK's family. And so, for all of these reasons, yeah. they decided to cut that scene, which I think is a pretty good decision. Yeah, I would agree with that. In 1995, Kubrick enlisted Terry Southern to script a sequel titled Son of Strangelove. Kubrick had t- Terry Gillum in mind to, uh, to direct. Uh-huh. However, the script was never completed. But the index cards, uh, the index cards laying out the story's basic structure, uh, were found among Southern's paper after he died in in October of 1995. Basically, it was set largely in the underground bunkers where Doctor Strangelove had taken refuge with a group of women. In 2013, Gillum commented, "I was told after Kubrick died by someone who had been dealing with him that he had been interested in doing another Strangelove with me directing. Yeah. I never knew about that until after he died, but I would have loved to do it. Could have been good." I don't know. That seems like a singular movie. Could like, be. Where do you where do you go from? I mean, I think it becomes world. much more comical yeah. when you set it in the underground bunkers. Maybe it becomes just like a sci-fi movie. I don't even know. Yeah, it could be interesting though. I think that Terry Gillum is an appropriate director to handle it. If anyone was going to do it, he also did Brazil and movies mm-hmm. like that. So he has sort of this absurdist touch already, yeah. and uh, knows how to slide some political commentary into it. So, could have worked, but we've now reached the point, Pete, where uh, we sum up why this is the best horror movie ever made, and uh, I'll let you start us off. All right. Like I said in the beginning, what's more horrifying than the end of the world and told in, like, such a smart and interesting way? Yeah. Um, I, I really like that, that line about this being a, a nightmare comedy. Yeah. Because... It definitely is. 
Yeah, yeah it's <laughs> absolutely terrifying to have the idea of this bomb drop. And to me, this is the best horror movie ever made because there's a quote that Kubrick said when he was responding to the criticisms yeah. of this movie where he said... A satirist is someone who has a very skeptical view of human nature, uh -huh. but who still has the optimism to make some sort of joke out of it, however brutal that joke may be. <laughs> and to me, the comedy cannot possibly work without the horror there as well. Yeah. And it's what the comedy plays off of. And the idea that this movie holds up, it holds up because we're still scared shitless. Uh, the, of, you know, just like constant military encroachment and our leaders. Sure. Like being incompetent and Absolutely. just not even thinking about us. I mean, look at look at the streets right now. Yeah. Like there are constant protests for racial justice. Uh -huh. The police brutality rates are out of control. Yeah. They're increasingly militarized as well. Uh -huh. um, and like I said, this is dropping the day before <laughs> the election. And, uh, and I think... A lot of Stanley Kubrick's work is anti-war and yeah. kind of anti... I don't know if anti-establishment is the right word, but... I, I would say that that fits, yeah. you know, especially you see in um, Clockwork Orange, this yeah. sort of, like, one thought, like, when they when they fix Alex and, and yeah. he, uh, goes, he can't listen to Beethoven anymore. Uh -huh. You know, he definitely has sort of this chip on his shoulder about being told what to do, but mm -hmm. also I think that he realizes that people working together is in their best interest, and... Yeah. Uh, you know, I can certainly relate to that. John Patterson of The Guardian wrote about this movie. He said, There has been nothing like Dr. Strangelove ever before. All of the gods before whom the America of the stolid, paranoid 50s had genuflected, the bomb, the Pentagon, the national security state, the president himself, Texan masculinity, and the alleged Connie menace of water, water fluoridation, went into the wood chipper and never got the same respect again. And I think that the fact that it does balance this absolutely terrifying concept yeah. with this incredible humor. It's it's sharp as attack. Yeah. And the performances are out of this world. And those two things combine into one piece that is greater than the sum of its parts. Mm -hmm. And those sums add up to a really fucking good movie. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. It's crazy that I think the first time I saw this, I was like 17 or 18. And like, I didn't think I had like the the emotional like depth to like sit through like most black and white movies yeah. but like this movie you can connect with so easily because of the comedy but it also makes you think of like oh maybe we should be doing more to like work together and to like not de-escalate yeah yeah <laughs> i also i do think that it is shot in black and white but it is pretty gorgeous i think the lighting yeah. in it is really great it very much captures that german expressionist feeling that it's clearly trying to evoke it's, it's just great it's the best horror movie ever made, in fact. Pete, thank yeah. you so much for coming on, man. This was absolutely a blast. Yeah, this um, is fun. Is there anything you want to plug? No, I don't have any pluggables. I guess go vote if you haven't voted. Yeah, go yeah. vote, yeah. everyone. Yeah. Vote Democrat. I'm, I was fucking say it. <laughs> vote Democrat and then vote Green Party down the down the rest. Don't drink fluorinated water. That's right. Stay away from Rain the fluorinated water. Rain or distilled water. water only. Um, as far as my plugs, you can... Find the show on Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL. That username applies pretty much everywhere, including if you want to go to Patreon.com forward slash LittleHorrorPHL. You can sign up, support the show. It's pretty cheap, and you get all kinds of great stuff depending on the tiers that you sign up at. Well, at every tier, you get the great feeling of supporting the show that you like. <laughs> but also, there will be bonus episodes, uh, riff track style commentaries. We put out some great like debate show style stuff, and even some episodes about movies that I love and uh, what I think are the best horror movies ever made. So you'll definitely want to be keeping up on the Patreon. Rate and review the show if you're enjoying it. Do that on iTunes, and uh, that's pretty much it for me. Yeah. Thanks for having me, George. Yeah, absolutely. Bye, yeah. everyone. <laughs>